Um, while I was, I guess you call it convalescing, that sounds like an old person's thing, but uh, <laughs> while I was uh, recovering, I did a lot of reading, and I did a lot of study, and one of the things that I, I was asking the Lord is, you know, how do you have not only a living faith, but how do you have a victorious faith in troubled times? And where he took me to was he took me to the book of Genesis. And what you see in the book of Genesis is you see faith in a broken world. And whether it's personal brokenness, some of you might know that I, I had a, you know, a very serious issue with my heart, with my blood pressure. Um, it wasn't a caused at all by eating fried chicken, fried catfish, <laughs> vegetables that were so soaked in pork that they were no longer vegetables. <laughs> but it was an interesting time as I, you know, as I particularly when something attacks your heart and you feel pain in your heart and you feel your whole body go weak. And I said, Lord, you know, how do I have faith to go through this? Because I believe you're my healer. I believe that this isn't outside of your control. But I began to realize that I, I, I had to root myself, I had to ground myself not in my feelings, but to ground myself in his word and his promises and the things that were eternally true. Faith is not faith in faith. Faith is faith in what God has said. And as you look at the book of Genesis, the thing that is characteristic is that when it looked the worst was when you had to have your greatest faith. So I wanted to start. Are you tracking with me a little bit in this? I wanted to start right from the beginning. And one of the things I'd like you to see as I was studying, as I was listening to different people about this, is I, I got some new insights, at least for me, about what Genesis 1 is really all about. And it gave me such confidence. And it gave me such a sense of hope that I wanted to share it with you. Now, it's a long passage. And I like it when you read the Bible. I, all these other people don't read with you. <laughs> I don't know if they're wimps or what, but uh, I'm kidding. Just kidding. I was going to sing like Kelvin, but I knew I couldn't. So, uh, so let's, I'd like you to read the scriptures with me. This is chapter 1 of Genesis. I love it when the church reads the Bible together. So can we do this? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Ah, we went too far. All right, that's as far as I want to go, I guess. So here's what I want you to think about with me. You know this story well, perhaps, but this is the narrative of creation. Now, this is chapter 1 of Genesis. It's not chapter 2. Now, chapter 1, if you really study it closely, you will see that it's poetry. That its purpose is not necessarily to be a science book. Its purpose is primarily to talk about the what and the why of creation. So can you say that with me? The what and the why. Okay? So it's not really all about the how. It's not all about figuring everything out about how this came and then that came because it is actually incredibly poetic. There are stanzas. There are repeated choruses in this. Notice how many times it says, and the Lord said it was good. So what you see is, is, is that the Spirit inspiring the writer is saying to us, we want, I want you to know what God did, and I want you to know why God did it. And so chapter 1 is much more of the idea of poetry, of us getting a sense of what God was up to and why he was up to it. Now, if you notice something, there's a division, just like in a good song, there's a division of of, uh, of the verse and the choruses. And so each day is basically a verse. And then each night, as it completes, there's a chorus. And God saw that it was good. And so what you see in what's going on here is something so important for you to understand the way God designed this world. He designed this world 
as a series of realms. Notice how it says he divided this into that. He put you know, the seas, and, and Job talks about how God himself made the seas roll up just so far. And then he swaddled the seas, Job says, with the clouds. And so you see what God is doing in all of these things is he's creating realms, places, places where not only are there realms, but there are rulers over those realms. He created, it said, the sun to do what? To rule the day. He created the moon and the stars to do what? To rule the night. So what did he create? He created fish and animals you know, uh, in the sea, to rule the sea. And then on the sixth day, it talks about he created animals and he created humans to rule over the earth. And so you begin to see that there's this, this whole aspect that God is about in which he, you know, we could look at and say there's three different realms that this poetry, inspired by the Holy Spirit, un- unpacks for us. There's the realm of light and darkness. So God created the sun, the greater light. He created the moon and lesser lights to rule the day and to rule the night. He created the realm of the water and the sky. And so he created fish and fowl in order to rule the water and the sky. He created the realm of land. And first he created the animals and then he created humans to rule over that realm. Now why is this important? Well, I'm going to show you as we... As we go about this, that you have authority, you have a purpose, you have a power to accomplish that purpose, and you have a position that you need to get into. And that position is one of authority as a child of God, as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. There, there's one thing I would love to see with each of you is that instead of praying beggar prayers, you would learn to pray with confidence. That instead of praying about things, you would begin to realize you can bring things about by prayer. Because you have a position that when you pray, you have authority. When you are living in that authority, you're actually exercising faith in who God says you are, instead of who the world says that you are. You see, God created and designed this world with a kingly structure. That means authority matters in the design of God. And when believers are not exercising or living in their authority, they are living less than the abundant life that Christ has called them to. And they are are not fulfilling what Jesus has commissioned you and I to do. Now, Here's the thing that's so cool in the narrative is that on the seventh day, God shows that his realm is above every other realm. Because on the seventh day, it says he sits on his throne. You see, he reigns. He rules. We, God did not give up his place when Satan deceived our parents. We gave up our place. Come on, that's important that you get this. God has never ceased to be the rightful ruler of the realm. Are you hearing me? 
So what are, we, what are we to take from that? Well, let's look at three things then about creation. Don't get excited. I got lots more things than this. <laughs> but the first three are this, okay? So God created everything with a hierarchy. Hierarchy is a part of design. Can hierarchy be corrupted? Of course. What happens to most people when they get power? It reveals how corrupt they are. What happens to most people when they get control? It reveals how broken they are. Broken people with power are dangerous. Am I the only one that believes that? But there is a hierarchy of all things. I mean, what was Moses trying to say this? He says, he's basically saying one thing. Do not worship anything other than the Lord your God. Why is he having to say that? Well, he's having to say that because as he explains creation, he's saying there's a greatness about all things that God has created. But never lose sight that God is king over all. Do you know how easy that is, though? It's easy because this is a world full of rulers and realms. But if you don't make God your supreme ruler then something else is going to rule over you. Let me give you an example from the creation narrative. When God said it's not good that man should be alone, it said he created one who was suitable for him. And the word that's used there, though it's translated as helper, is actually the word for military reinforcement. In other words, we men were so lost we needed a reinforcement. And he created someone perfect for that. Now, Adam's response, sometimes you don't get it unless you really study how Adam responded. His first response was to speak poetry to his wife. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's the first poem ever. Fortunately, there were no other men around. He, he won the day with this poem. <laughs> but here's what he was saying when he saw her. Get this. He said, I did not know me till I saw you. I didn't understand anything till you appeared in my life. Now, why is that important? It's important because, you see, God is so secure in being God that he gave us to each other in such a way that we might worship one another instead of worshiping God. God was willing because he so wanted us to be fulfilled in relationship. He was willing to give someone into Adam's life that might rule over his life, that might have power over him in his life, who might so, you know, he'd be, he would be so smitten with her that he would forget about God. You understand, there are things in this world that can so possess you. There are things in this world that can so distract you that they will rule over you. But the only one who can rule over you is the one who created you. Otherwise, you will be a slave to something that you should rule over instead letting it rule over you. That can be your work. That could be your relationship. It could be your family. You know, you understand this. Most idols are not made of bad things. 
most idols are made of good things that we turn into ultimate things. In other words, we let something of this realm become the ruler of our lives. Are you just quiet because you're thinking about this? Remember, I have a heart condition. Even those of you, see, friends, even those of you who begin to say, well, you have to be vegetarian, or you have to be this, or you have to be that, what you're doing is you're allowing nature to rule over you instead of you ruling over nature. Nothing wrong with being a vegetarian until you make it your faith, or you make it your religion. You take a good thing, you make it an ultimate thing, then it becomes a bad thing. And we do that with all kinds of stuff because, you see, it's a world of realms. And unless God is the supreme and ultimate ruler of your life, the realms will rule over you. Now, I think that's an important point. Are you tracking with me in that? But then again, you go forward and you look and you see there's nothing in which God has made that there isn't a unity Everything fits together. God creates everything. Why is this so important? Well, there's a couple of things that we all wrestle with. And because we wrestle with these things, sometimes we have inaccurate views of how God views the physical realm, and we have inaccurate views of how God actually thinks about our own longings and our own desires. See, what has happened for many, many years is Greek philosophy has trumped Biblical philosophy. And Greek philosophy basically says this, anything material is bad. So you take something as powerful as your sexual longings or your sexual drive. And what Greek philosophy said is those are just evil. You should just either subvert those or just simply satisfy those. But any way you do it, it's evil because the only thing that's good is the spirit. So even Christianity, in some ways, has taken something like sex and made it basically something dirty but necessary. And so you had kind of this prudishness about the body, about sexuality, that was pervasive in Christianity. As a matter of fact, most people, especially as I was growing up, you never talked about sex in church because it was too dirty to talk about. So sex, in a way, in Church life has always been seen as a dirty part of our life, which you see is more Greek than it is biblical. Because if God designed it, then it's good. It's beautiful. It has its proper place, which he says is in a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. Because it's so powerful and in some ways so dangerous to us that he wants it to be secure in the right setting with the right person for the rest of our lives. That's God's way. But he has never said that it was dirty or it was evil or it was just necessary only for reproduction. But you see, we've allowed other philosophies, not the philosophy that comes from Scripture, where God called everything that he made, including sex, good. The only thing he ever said wasn't good was to be alone. So what are, we doing? what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a God who even dug in the dirt. He got his hands dirty. 
And guess what? You are what he produced out of that dirt. <laughs> Which on the one hand gives us incredible honor, created by God in the image of God. But in other ways, humility, you're just dirt. <laughs> and to dirt you will return. So the material is not evil, but it's also not everything. Now, why am I saying that? You track with me on this? We are living in a world that says there's nothing but the dirt. That everything you are, everything I am, is nothing but a random locating, collocation of atoms that is totally accidental. There's no unity to anything. Everything is random. Do you understand? If you listen closely to the philosophy of our society, even suffering has no meaning because everything is accidental. Here is the question. You see, when you're striving, like all of us do, for self-esteem, for self-confidence, is it better for you to believe you're nothing but an accident or to believe that a creator designed you and it's all a unity. That he's even, talk about unity, think about this with me. He's working all things together for good. So whether I'm going through a hard time or I'm going through the best of time, he's the one making a unity out of the wholeness and fullness of my life. You see, I think the only way you can survive the difficult times, is to know there's a unity. That God is not, it's not made up. He's revealed. That you're not an accident. You're a design. You know, you're not, you're not random. You're God's poem. Matter of fact, in Scripture it says you are God's poema, His workmanship, His masterpiece in Ephesians 2.10. Would you look at a neighbor, and would you say to them, would you point at them with the righteous part of your finger? <laughs> would you point at them, and would you say, you're not random? You're not an accident? You're a poema, a masterpiece. Guess what that, can we just take a minute and guess what that means? You look around the room, there are many cultures, there are different ethnicities, different skin colors, different hair textures, all kind of things, and every one of us is a masterpiece. Not too high to think of ourselves because we did come from dirt, but the one who dug in the dirt was our God, and what he made was a poem, was a masterpiece. How can I treat a fellow image bearer of God as anything less than a masterpiece. So racism has no place in biblical Christianity. Hating people because they don't look like we want them to look has no place. Hating people because they're different or whatever it is has no place because every single one of us is God's masterpiece. This is, this is what changes the world, is to see each other from the biblical perspective. Now, if we're all accidents, then it starts to make sense that we divide against each other. And we only align with those who will advance me. 
But if we are all the Creator's masterpiece, then it starts to make sense that I show you the dignity that I want shown to me. I know that's heavy, but can you, can you track with me on that? Well, if the Bible says something over and over again, it tends to mean it. If every day it said, and he saw that it was good, who are we then to constantly say about ourselves or about others, man, this is so, this is so stupid, this is so bad. You know, it would make a huge difference if the beginning point of your life was, God, what you made was good. I may not understand it all, but what you made was good. Now, you, you could say to me, and I, I grew up in a theology that all they want to talk about is after the fall. And definitely sin and death have mired things. But what God made is good. I mean, how can you not, when you see... I mean, one of the things I love about living up here is the, is the lush greenery. I mean, just to drive up towards West Point or go up, you know, up, up on the, the Palisades and go up, up a ways and you start seeing the hills and you start seeing the, the greenery and you look over Bear Mountain Bridge and there's incredible sight. You feel like you're in Norway or somewhere, you know. It's so beautiful. And you realize... Of all the things that he made, he said we were the ones made in his image. If somehow I can love what he made in other things, I need to start by faith saying, God, there's something good in me. I know this may seem strange because it's almost like we are trained to fear ourselves. It's like we're trained trained to fear failure so we'll be motivated to do good. I have never found that to really work. Being afraid of other people's criticism hasn't made me more creative. Being afraid that I'm going to fail hasn't made me risk more. It's only when I begin to say, God, I'm your workmanship. What you do is good. I'm not saying I'm good. I'm saying the God who made me is good, so I will receive that goodness. I'm not saying I have some kind of intrinsic goodness. Remember, I'm dirt. But I'm saying that something that's going on in my life is God taking the evil and making it good. God taking the bad and bringing good from it. Well, that leads me to things about us. First, you realize that long before... Any sin entered into the world, work was a part of who we are. Now, I mean, some of you, maybe you can be lazy and happy. But most of us can't be because God created us to do meaningful work. <laughs> when I first, pre- I was 18 years old when I first preached. And I, after I finished, it was interesting because I, I remember at 3 o'clock in the morning, God gave me the message. And I always thought he would just download it like that, and I wouldn't really have to work at it anymore. (laughs) Never been that way. But that day, that first time he downloaded it at 3 in the morning, I wrote it down. I presented it to a group of people. They told me how good it was. And I just, as I was saying it, as I was doing it, I just said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Now, you guys have to pay me for all the other parts of leadership. But this part, (laughs) I would pay for. I would pay to do because I love it so much. 
You see, when you find the work that God has you to do, what happens is you find your sweet spot. And when you're in your sweet spot, as many of you can attest, I don't want to let it go. Lisa says I get the plane up really well. I don't land it very well, she says. (laughs) And part of it is because I like flying so much. (laughs) Are you hearing me? You know, if you're fighting for your whole life to say, I don't want to work, you're fighting your creation. You're fighting your design. Or if you just work for money, you're fighting your design. You were made, both whether it's physical or mental. I love what Luther said. He said, the milkmaid is the one who is doing the work of God. And there people ask him, well, why is that? He said, because God has promised that he would provide the food for his people. And the milkmaid is bringing the milk. That's God through the milkmaid providing for his people. So that work is of God. And then you begin to realize, I I was in the city recently, and it doesn't look like anybody's sweeping. (laughs) But you know, when people sweep the streets in New York City, they're doing the work of God. You know why? Because they're taking the chaos and they're bringing order to it. That's what it says in the first book, in the first chapter of Genesis, that God took the chaos, he took the emptiness, and he filled it. He took disorder and made order. I mean, you're, you're a worker. But not only that, you're a thinker. God made it from the very beginning the that we would recognize that the mind is important. Why would he give us a creation narrative set in poetry if he didn't think the way you think is important? He thinks it's so important that you understand who made nature, who gave you the ability to study and to understand nature. You know, science is not opposed to God. Science, in its proper perspective, is of God because we were made to think. Here's, here's, many of us have said this. I recently read something that Rob wrote, Rob Reamer wrote, and he said, doubt is, not, doubt is not an issue for faith. And what he means is that where you have doubt means that's the place you have to think about. That's the place where you have to pursue the answers. It's when you come to a place of unbelief and disobedience from that unbelief that you've stepped out of faith. There are so many things that we don't know. There are so many things that we will never know. And so there are times when God unsettles us, shuffles the deck, so to speak, and we have to ask, Lord, what does this mean? Because he wants us to be thinkers. As you look at your neighbor and say, he wants you to be a thinker. Come on, do it with a little more conviction. But here's the thing in, the, in all of creation narrative is this interesting thing, is he left it with incredible potentiality. Do you understand that when he created the earth, the potential for everything was already there? We didn't, we didn't create radio waves. We discovered them. Those telephones that you and I can't live without now, the potential was there from the beginning. I mean, the medicines that keep us safe are miraculous in so many ways, but the potential of those medicines were always there. 
And we have no idea what the next thing that we're going to discover will be. Because God put potential. Now here's the thing. That means there's incredible potential in you that is yet to be discovered. Would you do something for me? It's like vacation Bible school. But would you do this? Would you draw a circle around yourself? Just see the circle. All right, now, imagine that that circle is your comfort zone. How big is that circle? Don't lie. (laughs) Where do you think your potential is in regard to your comfort zone? Yeah, if you're honest, it's outside, right? Which means God is committed to destroying your comfort zone to get you to your potential. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, but the idea that God left in this narrative is that the stewardship of everything he's made is in our hands. So we are called to be rebuilders as he was a builder. And that has to do with his care for this world. So it's not just that we are only concerned that people go to heaven, but our concern is how they live here and now a concern for our current society, a concern for its brokenness. Do you understand? You cannot, if you are a believer, you cannot ignore that God himself has allowed a discovery, a revelation of the levels of racism in our country. He has allowed the discovery of the levels of inequalities, violence, all of these things. And God is not calling simply on the government of the United States He's calling on the believers and the church as a part of his move to love people like Christ loves the church. To be both concerned for soul and body. And not just to have notches on our gospel guns, but to actually show the love of Christ without any need for return. I think in my life, What God has been doing more and more as I get older is he's trying to wean me away from transactional love. I think that what I grew up with, and again, I'm not faulting the people who taught me this, but it was a reality that I was taught, you love those who love you back. You forgive those who ask for forgiveness. You treat well those who treat you well. And the idea there, if you, if, you, if you listen to that carefully, is there's a transaction going on. As long as you're good for me, I will be good for you. As long as you do for me, I will do for you. Do you understand the only way that you are in an acceptable position with God is that he didn't treat you that way. He commended his love toward you while you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you. So either you are moving away from transactional love or you're stuck. I believe that what he's teaching me more and more is to love my wife that way, to love my family that way, to love my friends that way, to love my church that way, and to love my community that way. Now, I can't produce that kind of love. I can only live in that kind of love like a warehouse that receives it and then distribute it. Can I just say to you, you're not a factory of love. That would make a good song, though. (laughs) 
The only way it, the only way it takes place is if you're a warehouse of love. See, what, what our emptiness does is say, you have to fill me. And then if you don't fill me, I won't do anything for you. But then you see, if we are in this realm of God's love, and his love is ruling over us, now I have enough love not only for me, but I have enough love to share with you. And it's not transactional. And often he puts people in our lives to love who don't deserve our love. And he says, will you show them the love that I've shown you? I hear people. Are you tracking with me a little bit on this? I hear people sometimes will come up to me and say, Pastor, I don't deserve his love. And I'm like, do you expect me to disagree with you? That's the whole point. It is undeserved love that you receive by faith that then you use to rebuild the lives of those around you. And guess what? That means you can't control it. You can't control the outcome. You can't control what they give you back. You just give. And the amazing thing, can I, can I tell you a secret? Don't tell anybody. But the amazing thing is the more you get away from transactional love with people, the more love you experience from people. Because as long as it's a transaction, it tends to be poverty. It tends to be miserly. And it tends to be very short-lived. We are called to be rebuilders. Well, let me continue with this. We're... We're called to be enjoyers. You know, when God said it's good, he didn't go, you know, that I did a pretty good job today. Man, did you see the flamingos? <laughs> Nobody could have created a flamingo like that except me, you know? No, that's not what he means, right? He's not sitting there looking at his performance and saying, well, I got my list done today. What's he saying when he says it's good? He's saying it gives me pleasure. I'm enjoying it. This satisfies me. You know what? You're made in the image of God. It isn't just about you performing well. God has made you to where there is a need. There's a hole. There's a, a place where you need to be fulfilled. You need to be satisfied. This doesn't make you evil. It doesn't make you weak. It makes you human. And in many ways, when you're living in joy, you're most godlike. And I totally believe this is why the scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. I grew up in a theology that was very powerfully influenced by a question and an answer. It, it kind of marked the whole theology of what I grew up in, and this was it. What is the chief end or what's the purpose of man? And the answer was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And John Piper, a, a preacher and a pastor, changed it a little bit. He said, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Lisa, a couple of weeks ago, she spoke of the father in the par parable of the prodigal son and talked about, the, actually two months ago, she talked about the resentment of the older brother that the father was being gracious to, the, to his wayward brother. 
And the father's answer to the brother when the brother said, you've never thrown a party for me. You've never given me a goat even. And the father says this. He says, everything I have is yours. And I have always been with you. See, there's a sense in which, friends, until God is your joy, everything else will leave you hollow. You see, when you make God ultimate, when he's your treasure, then you start to have a taste for true satisfaction. See, when I'm really walking with God, food tastes better. When I'm really turning my heart towards God, my love for my wife is that much stronger. When I am enjoying God, then my daughter doesn't have to say to me, Dad, why are you so irritable? It all is a unity. It all fits together. Either the realm rules over you or you rule over the realm. These last two. I know this is a lot, but can you? I mean, I'm the one with the heart problems. Come on. (laughs) Are you tracking with me in this? Are you seeing how important this is for the way you think? Well, the last two have been my trial for this past month. I don't relax easily. Any of the rest of you that way? Vacation takes me five days to detox, and then it's time to come home. I have headaches on Saturday because I'm not working. Okay? But do you see what he's saying in this creation narrative? Relax, I'm on the throne. And you might say, yeah, but I don't like what you're doing. I think what's happened is instead of God being our security, money is our security, our health is our security, anything visible is our security. But here's the thing I've watched over my 62 years of life. It doesn't matter which political party is in power. Everybody's afraid. If you're for the party in power, you're afraid you're going to lose power. If you're against the party that's in power, you want to get them out of power. And either way, you're insecure, anxious, depressed. Right now, we have a country that's polarized here on July 4th of people who are fearful, angry, and insecure. Because we're acting, even as Christians, like our party needs to be on the throne instead of relaxing and saying our God is on the throne. Well, the last one is resting, okay? How do you rest? Well, there's only one way to rest. And, and it's so simple that you will, you'll think it's not important unless you really get it. The only way you rest is if you have set aside your own righteousness. You've set aside your own, you know, I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I demand this. It's when you say the only thing that I stand under is the righteous record of Jesus. Look at what it says here. If you've not come to rest in Christ, you'll still be trying to prove yourself. But in Hebrews 3, it says this. 
God swore an oath in his wrath to the people of Israel, and he said, they shall not enter my rest. And then the writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Would you just do this one thing? Would you hold up your hand like this? Do you know what he's saying? Hold on to the end. That the record of Jesus is enough. So what's in your hand? Is it your record? Is it your resume? Is it your bank account? Is it your transcript? What's in your hand? If anything but the record of Jesus is in your hand, then you have no rest. But if you, every time you face something, you say, it's not my record. It's Jesus's record. It's not my righteousness. It's not my performance. And then you say, I can rest. You see, God who is on the throne that allows you to relax is also the God who accepts you as long as you keep holding up the record of Jesus. And no other record will do. Passion. Will you stand with me as we close? Let's pray together. You know, I just get the sense in this room, if you've, if you've never uh, taken hold of the record of Jesus as your rightful place, today's the day to do that. If you've never declared that, that you can't live this life with without him, then today's the day to do that. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you and, and we just say that we can't live this life without you. Our record on its own, standing apart, is no good. We need a Savior, and you provided one. And so, Lord, today we take hold of that record and we hold it up. Would you just continue to hold it up as Pastor Mike asked us to do? Would you just hold it up? And Lord, the, the beautiful picture that I just get in my mind is just how you've not only united us to you, but you've united us to one another so that when it gets hard to hold up this record, we get to look at one another and say, hold it up high, you belong to him. And so we stand together as the family of God and we declare the record of Christ is our identity. Our position in him is our identity. We get to be the thinkers. We get to have the potential we get to rest and relax. We get to enjoy the goodness of our God because we stand in the record of Christ and we stand together and we hold up each other's arms when it gets heavy, but we say, Lord, we stand in your record. We belong to you.
Let today be a marker of the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Father, we thank you for your ultimate plan. We thank you that we have faith in the record of Christ. And we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.